Transmitting from the lovely little city of Taylor, Texas, you are listening to Plow and Hose, a show dedicated to the joys and challenges of organic backyard gardening in Central Texas. I am your host, Julie Rydell. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Plow and Hose, my plant friends. I am so glad you are joining me in the backyard again. It's been a really lovely, lovely weekend, and we had some um, big thunderstorms recently, and I was kind of hopeful that that was going to do a really good job of washing a lot of the pollen out of the air, and I think it did good, um, at least for a day or so, but this past week, my eyes have been a bit itchy, and I've been really sneezy too. And sure enough, I noticed on the news this past week that oak pollen um, has dropped, but pecan pollen was high. I was really hoping that we could catch a break and knock out the oak and the pollen, the oak and the pecan pollen allergens out, and just be done with it for the rest of the spring. But Mother Nature definitely had other ideas apparently okay even though we are closing out the end of april and heading into may we still have a little bit of time to plant some vegetables from seed here in central texas you can still put out beans cantaloupe swiss chard cucumbers, warm season greens like amaranth and Malabar spinach. We can put out okra, southern peas, sweet potatoes, and all of the squashes, summer, winter, pumpkins, and we can also still do watermelons from seed. You can also continue to put out tomato and pepper and eggplant transplants out too. I saw those available at the store this week. But um, speaking of tomatoes, I noticed that I have a volunteer tomato coming um, up from last year's plants. I'm pretty sure it's one of the teeny tiny red currant tomatoes that we have always grown. They are super prolific every year. And without a doubt, we always have volunteers that come up year after year. And this one little volunteer plant that I found earlier this week is actually in the middle of my beets. I am thinking that I'm just going to leave it where it is and not try to attempt to transplant it to somewhere, somewhere else in the garden. Mainly because it's in between... Um, rows of beets and when I go to harvest my beets it, it really shouldn't disturb this little tomato seedling obviously it wants to live there so I'm just gonna leave it I think it's gonna do actually pretty well especially since I'm not asking it to grow I didn't intentionally plant it there it just volunteered to be there and just like its relatives before 
Who am I to stand between generation after generation of teeny tiny tomatoes? Anyway, um, I hadn't decided what to plant there um, after the beets come up. So I'm thinking as long as my little volunteer continues to grow, it solves the problem at least for a small part of the bed. I'll have something in there. Another plant that is starting to pop up throughout my backyard is common purslane. A lot of people consider this a weed. It's a small leafed kind of fleshy plant that grows sort of flat to the ground and it kind of forms like a rosette. And it puts out these cute tiny yellow flowers. They have a single taproot that puts out kind of secondary roots, but it doesn't really grow super crazy um, and deep. So they're still pretty easy to pull out if you want to pull them out. Common purslane tolerates um, poor soil and drought conditions, which is probably why people consider it a weed because it just comes up everywhere, everywhere you don't want it to be. And like other succulents, like sedums, if you place a leaf or a bit of the stem on the ground, it's going to quickly form roots and start a brand new plant. This plant really seems intent on world domination because not only does it root easily from cuttings or um, from leaves, it also easily and freely seeds so it's gonna the, all those little yellow flowers will get pollinated and it will put out a ton of little tiny seeds and you know it's actually done a pretty decent job at um, spreading all over the globe common purslane is found all over the world throughout the mediterranean countries it's in europe also in the Middle East, in Asia, in Central and South America, and even in Australia. Having a global presence like it does, that's a good thing for several reasons. It actually makes a good companion plant because of its succulent nature. It helps create like a microclimate around other plants and because it raises the humidity and because it has that tap root and secondary roots, purslane roots will help bring moisture and nutrients up from the ground and that benefits any of the other surrounding plants because they can use the extra moisture and of course the nutrients. If you see purslane popping up in your garden, that's a really good thing because it's a good companion plant. Purslane will help your garden plants by improving the humidity around them and it makes water and nutrients more available to your plants that you intentionally planted. It acts like a living mulch and it suppresses weeds, but in a better way because not a, a mulch doesn't really do anything, it, whereas um, purslane can raise the humidity and it also draws up nutrients and water from the soil. Another really cool thing about this plant is that most folks don't realize that purslane is also edible and it's really quite nutritious because it contains lots of vitamins A and vitamin C 
It has good amount of calcium and iron, magnesium, and potassium, as well as um, a lot of other antioxidants. It actually has more beta carotene than carrots, and it's unusually high in omega-3 fatty acids. Now, I'm sure you've heard of those. Omega-3 fatty acids are really good for your heart, your blood, and your brain. And probably the most common way that you've heard about them um, is that they are commonly found in um, fish. But they're also found in walnuts, chia seeds, and flax seeds. So if you are wanting to get more omega-3s in your diet and maybe you're on a budget or you, you don't like fish, just go out to your backyard and find some purslane. Not only is it super convenient, it's a whole lot cheaper than salmon. You can eat it fresh or you can cook it. You know, If you eat it raw, you can use it just like you would spinach, just Add it to a salad or sandwiches. You can throw it in smoothies too. It kind of has a tart and sour lemony, but really fresh flavor. Those little leaves and stems are fleshy and the sap inside of them kind of has a little bit of a slime factor, kind of like okra, that kind of slime inside. You can cook with it, but I just want to tell you that heating it will increase that slime factor. So if you cook with it, you either just need to barely cook it or cook it a really long time, long enough to reduce the slime. It can be used as a thickener for soups. It kind of acts like okra, just like when you add okra to gumbo, it kind of thickens your soup. Other countries have been eating purslane since ancient times, and it's still really popular in Mediterranean cultures. It's definitely worth trying. You, um, there's all kinds of recipes out on the internet. So if you want to incorporate this really, re- really nutritious food, just Google purslane and you'll get all kinds of ideas on how to prepare it and eat it and enjoy it. Common purslane is related to ornamental purslane, which has been grown and cultivated um, for larger and more colorful flowers. The ornamental varieties are also sold as portulaca, which is the botanical name given to to the entire purslane family. I really like portulaca. It comes in so many different colors and they're all beautiful. It comes in yellow and red. There's a light pink and there's a hot pink version. There's comes in orange and white and even um, there's a new stripy um, version that kind of looks like peppermint candy. Portulaca has the same five petal flower as common purslane. They're just much larger. Um, Portulaca flowers are about the size of a quarter, or you know, maybe just a little bit bigger than a quarter. There's also an ornamental purslane um, that is um, slightly different. It's called um, 
moss rose. It has a slightly different leaf and it instead of like the single petals, it has a double flower with a lot more petals. It kind of looks a bit like um, a small carnation with all those ruffledy um, petals. Both rose, um, moss rose and portulaca, they're both edible too. All of the parts, the stems, the leaves, and the flowers, you can you can eat those if you want to try the if you want to try them. Nearly all varieties of portulaca can be found like in hanging baskets and also as bedding plants. The ornamental portulacas are annual plants in Central Texas. They are cold um, sensitive and they die back when it gets too cold. So they're gonna. You know, as soon as that frost comes, that's it. They're, they're done. But during the summer and the warm season, they are super hardworking plants. And they just bloom and bloom and bloom and bloom all summer long. I really like portulaca. Another neat plant that is really similar and also related to purslane is a plant called Jewels of Opar. J-E-W-E-L-S of Opar, O-P-A-R. This little plant is really just lovely. It's more delicate looking than purslane and portulaca. The leaves and the stem are thinner and they're not, not as fleshy, but they're still tender and sort of succulent, more, more so than other plants. Jewels of Opar are sometimes called pink baby's breath because they send out these tall flower stems that are kind of naked and bare and they don't have like any leaves on them. These thin, delicate flower stems are also called um, pantacles. Um, they can get to be like three feet tall. When the flowers open, they blossom into these sweet, tiny, dark pink little stars. They're so cute. When the flowers are pollinated and they set seed, the seed heads look like teeny tiny ruby red gemstone beads. They're like round and dark red. They are really delicate and wispy and so exotic looking and just the name really, really seems to fit them. You know, years ago when I first came across Jewels of Opar in a nursery in South Austin, I, I remember thinking that it was kind of weird and, and I thought, well, that's like a really magnificent sounding name for a plant. Um, maybe a little bit on the dramatic side, you know, kind of like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. But when I started researching um, this plant for the show today, I, it, it finally kind of clicked with me why I always felt like that was an odd but a spectacularly grand name for a plant. And that's because it shares the name with an Edgar Rice Burroughs novel, Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. My brother had all the Tarzan books when we were growing up. But anyway, Jewels of Opar are native to the Caribbean and Central America. Here in T 
Taylor and in Central Texas, they grow as annuals where they grow flower and seed and then they die all in one growing season. When they get established, they are self-sowing and they reseed themselves really, really easily. There are two types of jewels of opar plants. They're basically the same. There's an original type um, and it has like medium green leaves, but then there's a new cultivar that has these really beautiful, striking lime green leaves. The leaves on both of these types are edible, just like purslane. You can eat them raw. They don't quite have the sour, tangy, lemony flavor like purslane, but they are a nice neutral addition to summer salads. They are actually one of the few leafy greens that will grow throughout our hot, hot Texas summers. But bonus, you also get cute little tiny pink flowers. Despite being such a delicate looking plant, Jules of Opar is actually really tough. It's very drought tolerant and heat tolerant and it's super easy to care for. Just plant it, let it go, it'll reseed, and it, it's a really neat plant. Jules of Opar um, prefers like a sandy, well-draining soil, and they want lots of sun. They do prefer a more fertile soil than purslane. Purslane will grow anywhere. Doesn't matter. If you have crap soil, you can grow purslane. So if you plant some jewels of opar, be sure to top dress with some compost and fertilize them occasionally with like some liquid seaweed or compost tea. Just like all plants, the more fertile and rich the soil is, the larger and healthier your plants will become. You are listening to Plow and Hose on KBSR Black Sparrow Radio. If you are enjoying my show, I hope you'll go over to www.blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station and learn all about the great shows and music, all coming out of our little digital station broadcasting from Taylor, Texas. While you're out on the internet, be sure to stop by the Plan Host Facebook page and like and share with all your gardening friends or head over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and sus- subscribe to the Plan Hose Podcast. If you like the flexibility of being able to play, pause, and rewind my show whenever you want, download some episodes, and while you're there, leave a review. It's super quick to do. Just click on the stars, type a few words. It's going to help others find Plow and Hose, and it lets folks know that it's a show worth giving a listen. I want to thank y'all so very much who have taken the time to download some shows and especially those that have left a review. All right, let's get back to gardening. Now, I just before all of that, I had briefly mentioned fertilizer. And now that we are full on into our prime growing season, I want to spend just a little time talking about fertilizers today and in particular organic fertilizer. Fertilizers are extra products 
that you add to your plants. Normally plants get just what they need from the soil that they are in. Compost is the most basic and the most natural of all fertilizers. Compost is just decomposed plant material plus soil microbes like good bacteria and beneficial fungi. Compost and decomposition happens on its own. So you can either set up a compost pile and have your own source of compost right in your backyard or, you know, just buy some and use bad compost. It's the best stuff. Either way, if you put compost in the bed before you plant your plants, that's probably sufficient enough for the cooler season plants, but you know, we're, we're creeping into summer now and all those summer crops tend to be um, heavy feeders. You'll need to put compost in your soil before you plant them and then plan to fertilize them throughout the growing season. Compost is slow acting, so you might want to supplement with a separate product. And to be honest with you, there's really an overwhelming selection of fertilizers out there. There are solid fertilizers, there's liquid fertilizers, they come in powder and granules, they come concentrated and ready to use, there's natural, there's synthetic. Natural sources can be any number of things like seaweed or cotton mill. They can be animal byproducts like manure or fish emulsion or blood meal, bone meal, and there's even feather meal. When I was first teaching myself to garden, I was really, really into flowers, so I didn't think about what I was mixing into the soil or really spraying on them. We weren't eating them, so I would just go to like a big box store and just pick up something that had a good looking label and maybe it said flowers on the package and you know maybe I even um, heard a commercial about it or something. I never considered if it was natural or synthetic. It wasn't until we started growing food that kind of got me thinking about my gardening practices. And yes, I had some really beautiful flowers that I would drench once a week in some weird aqua blue juice that kind of looked like windshield washer fluid and it smelled super gross. You know, <laughs> that was gross enough. But when I thought about it, I'm kind of grossed out by like blue raspberry flavored stuff. And, um, you know, at some point I was just like, what am I doing? Why am I dousing all of my plants with this smelly, bright blue stuff? I mean, now that I think about it, I'm kind of embarrassed that I even thought that was a good idea. But once I started learning more about organic gardening, I was just totally hooked. But anyway, back to the fertilizers. Natural or synthetic, all fertilizers do the same thing. They provide extra nutrients to your plants. When you are looking for a new fertilizer, look at the label. All of them are going to list three numbers in bold somewhere on the package. Those are the NPK numbers. 
Those tell you how much nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium are in the product, NPK. It doesn't stand for napkin. That's where my brain goes every single time, NPK. It's actually nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Just remember, remember that those are the abbreviations on the periodic table of elements, and K stands for potassium. All plants benefit from a wide variety of minerals and trace elements, but all plants solely depend on these three, NPK. Those numbers are on the package. They're always in that order, and they represent the percentage of each of those nutrients. Nitrogen is the leaf maker. It's going to give you nice green leaves. Phosphorus is the root maker. You probably won't notice that um, because we don't really look at the roots. Um, and potassium is the fruit and flower maker. If everything is going well in your garden and you don't really have any concerns about your plants, just keep it simple. Choose a fertilizer product that is well balanced with pretty much all the all the numbers the same with equal amounts of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. So find an organic product that it's like 555 or 322. As you are looking at fertilizer products, you'll probably notice how the synthetic brands will have a higher NPK numbers than natural products. Synthetics are quick acting and they give a boost to your plants, but it becomes problematic if you use them too often. And that's kind of like a little trap there because you're like, oh, this worked really well, so I'm going to use it again and hopefully get even better results. But that's not really how it works. Um, what plants aren't able to use, it's going to, you know, those extra nutrients will either stay in the soil or they'll drain off into the water table or into the waterways. When they build up in the soil, all that extra fertilizer can actually burn your plants. When applying fertilizer, it is kind of like cooking. You want to start out with like a small amount of cayenne pepper. If that's not enough, you can always add more. But if you add too much, it's overpowering. It's going to ruin your dish and it's going to be way too spicy. Once you overdo the pepper, there's not a lot you can do to fix it. And the same idea works for fertilizer. If you seem to have an issue with your plants, say, there's something wrong with your leaves, you can use a product that has a little more nitrogen. Or if you're concerned about not having blossoms, try something with a little extra potassium. Just get on the internet and research products. Take a little time and learn about fertilizers and how they work. By knowing a bit more, you can ensure that you are doing right by your plants and giving them what they need to do what you want them to do. As it starts getting hotter, we are, and we are watering more, you're going to want to find 
something to get your plants a little extra nutrition. Heat is going to zap it. So, you know, maybe consider getting two basic products, a liquid and a solid. Switch them up at one time, use the liquid, and then the next time add like a low, well-balanced granular product at the base. And, you know, throughout the summer, you can do this every three weeks or so. There are some really good organic fertilizers available that you can use to support your plants and your flowers and your crops. And with a little research, you can find a product that will help address any issues as they come up. Speaking of nutrient issues, blossom end rot is something that you might encounter um, when growing tomato plants. You know, Tomatoes are just starting to bloom and set fruit now. Um, but personally, I've only ever had it affect one tomato plant this whole time that um, we've been backyard gardening. Blossom end rot is caused by calcium or lack of calcium in tomato plants. When calcium levels are too low, the bottom side of tomato fruits will start to discolor and they'll shrink up and shrivel and then the tissue will start to break down and it'll start to rot. You'll know it when you see it because you'll look at your tomato and it'll have one big black spot across the bottom of the fruit. The problem is caused by the plant's ability to take up calcium from the soil. It's caused by erratic watering and, and drought conditions. It can happen to eggplants and peppers too. It's just not as common or, um, as it is in tomatoes. So if you notice um, blossom end rot, it may be tempting to add fertilizer to give them some extra nutrients, but that's not going to solve the problem because the issue is with the plant's ability to take up calcium. You can give them more calcium, but it, it won't be able to do anything with it. Blossom end rot is ugly, but it's completely treatable. You just have to be diligent about your watering. If you do get blossom end rot, you absolutely can eat the tomatoes. You just have to slice off the ugly part and enjoy the rest of the tomato. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to make you sick. And reality is, is that you're probably going to cut it up anyway. So no need to waste it. Depending on the stage of development, it may not be the best quality tomato, but you know, don't, don't waste it just because you have blossom and rot. Just slice it off, eat the rest of it. Blossom and rot tends to happen early in the season, so you'll want to correct the issue so that you can enjoy fully ripened tomatoes the rest of the season. Tomato plants like quite a bit of water, and when they set fruit, they want even more water. They're kind of picky plants because they want lots of water, but not too much. And they definitely don't want to be waterlogged or soggy. Kind of the key to um, keeping them happy is to water them deeply, but infrequently. And by that, I mean, instead of giving them 
a little bit of water every day, it's really better to give them a good long soak every few days. Tomatoes develop really deep and extensive root systems. So if you are in the habit of watering every day and just a little bit every day, it's really not enough for those deep, deep roots. So instead of sprinkling them every day for three, four, five minutes, just set up a sprinkler or like a soaker hose and let that run 20 or 30 minutes a couple times a week. If it's hot, you'll need to water a little bit more. If it's rainy, of course, you'll need to adjust and maybe skip a watering. It's really easy um, to keep and maintain your watering habits. If you get like a timer for your hip, um, for your hose bib and just set that up between your hose and your faucet and um, let that run automatically, it'll turn it off too. If your tomatoes are in pots, you'll need to keep an eye on them when the weather warms up and just give them plenty of water. Water them until the water runs all the way through. Pots tend to dry out quickly during the hottest days of summer. If you are outside visiting your plants every day, you'll be able to spot any issues with your tomatoes, um, including blossom end rot. If you haven't planted any beans yet, this is a great time to get them in the ground. All beans have a thick, hard seed coat, and they really benefit from soaking overnight. If you soak large, hard seeds like beans and peas overnight in like a dish of water, your seeds are going to germinate and sprout faster. Rehydrating your seeds can really shorten the germination time. I love fresh green beans, and we usually put in some climbing pole beans every year. The kids like them, they grow fast, they're really reliable and predictable. But if you're wanting to try something different this year, or if you just like weird plants like I do, try growing some Asian long beans. Long beans are part of the cowpea family, and as you probably guessed it by now, the edible pods get really long, like up to two feet long. They're crazy. And this plant absolutely does not care about the heat. It'll just keep growing no matter how hot it gets. But just like everything in the garden, some moisture is going to help keep them um, be productive and extend the growing season. But really quite drought tolerant here in Taylor. Long beans grow quite long, especially when compared to green beans like Kentucky Wonder or any of the French beans. Like I said, they grow to be at least like two feet long and they have a nice mild flavor. Because they are in the cowpea family, they tend to get a little pithy and dry compared to regular green bean pods, but if you pick them when they're 12 inches or shorter, they're going to be a lot more tender. In a way, they're kind of like okra in that if you hesitate to pick them one day, 
I swear they'll like grow overnight and they won't be nearly as tender if you just picked them when they were smaller. So if you see one, just pick it. I think they are really cool and they're super easy to prepare. They don't have a string, so just snap the ends off of both sides. You can leave them long or chop them up into regular green bean size pieces. But instead of boiling them like regular green beans, you know, how you boil them in water until they turn like olive or army green, instead just blanch them in boiling water and then saute them real quick in um, a wok or like a hot pan. They are really neat plants and a fun substitute for, you know, regular size green beans. There is um, a variety that's kind of a purpley red that's really kind of fun. Unfortunately, they don't stay that color once they're cooked, but it's cool to have some like really long freaky red beans in your garden. All right. Well, that's all I have for today. I need to wrap up the show. Thank you all for joining me today. I really do appreciate everyone who takes the time to download the podcast and then also all of the listeners who faithfully join me every week on KBSR to listen in. Thank you. Production assistance provided by KBSR, Black Sparrow Radio. Original music created by Alex Cuervo. Discover more of his music at alexcuervo.tv. If you love plants and gardening in Central Texas, be sure to click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and never miss seasonal information on Plow and Hose. Plow and Hose is written and recorded at my home in Taylor, Texas.